All right. All right, all right, all right. Success. Huzzah. Man, man that's what I like about Aslan, man. I keep getting older. He stays <laughs> the same age. Welcome to Chronically Narnia, the podcast in which we discuss the Chronicles of Narnia chapter by chapter, and today we are discussing the entire book of The Silver Chair. I am Hamlet, uh, also known as Rillian, and also known as Kristen. And here's my co-host. I'm the head of Experiment House, who is, of course, a tumnus. A tumnus? You don't think that you're the Green Witch? No. Okay, no. all right, okay. We're gonna have to get into that. I mean, we didn't mention her having hooves, and we didn't have a physical description of the head of Experiment House, so I can only assume. All right, well, no hooves, but you're probably a fawn. Okay. Um, so do we need some help discussing uh, this entire book? I think we do, because like, I don't think we can get anything new out of it that we haven't already uh, sussed out, so. I don't know. We haven't talked about this whole Tumnus line, the Hamlet thing. Obviously, those are deep wells of uh, literary discussion. Yes, so much to talk about, but we do need help. We do need help, so today we have a special guest on. What? I know. What? (laughs) Well. Where did you come from? Well. (laughs) Uh, Oh, who, me? (laughs) I'm not enchanted. I'm not enchanted. Right now, I'm not enchanted. I was formerly enchanted. That was me enchanted. I know I seem normal before, and I seem kind of freaky now, but now I'm not enchanted. Otherwise known as Nathan. Hello, not enchanted, Nathan. (laughs) And we absolutely have an unprecedented situation here. (laughs) Did we? Nathan is in studio with wow. us. Crazy. What the? What, there's been no precedent for this in the past. <laughs> there hasn't. We've never had another person in studio with us before. We we did take the studio elsewhere. Yes, yeah, so we did once take the studio elsewhere, but we have never had another person here. Yeah. On site. It's crazy because before, when I was on the show, I saw you guys, and I felt like I was there. But I wasn't really there. You weren't. But now I'm here. It's like you. It's so enchanting to think about. <laughs> it's like you've stepped through a door in a wall. So. <laughs> you thought you were going onto the moor. I did. That was kind of what it was like coming here was stepping through a door in a wall. Yeah. Uh, it's weird because a lot. Some doors are in the air. <laughs> But we, this door was in a wall, with like most doors. We don't need to get into another discussion of what a doorway is. Okay, oh, we do, do we? That once. We don't. Uh, anyway, welcome back. A friend of the podcast, Nathan. You are now uh, tied with Steve as being uh, a, a two-time guest. Yes, I get the two-timers jacket. <laughs> I mean, technically he did call in. Did call in that one time. Yeah. I mean, 
What do you mean? We had that one time there was a concerned caller. That yes, was, uh... yes, the concerned caller did reach out to us. Yeah, I, I thought that person chose to remain anonymous, but... Uh, no, I gave my name. Yeah, I even gave a book-related name at the beginning. There you go. See? Why don't you See? remember our friends? Because we've done a hundred episodes of this stupid podcast. I'm point. on the 100th episode? I am so honored. Uh, we're we're higher than that, I think. Yeah, <laughs> I can tell just looking at your eyes. <laughs> uh, anyway, since we're editing all that out, how do we? Uh, how are we going to start this off? We we're editing start... all of that out. No, we're not editing any of that. We usually start with a summary of uh, chapter. Is that a thing we've been doing for the past? No, couple no, of no. You usually start with witty banter. Yes. Check. Done. Uh, the past couple of review episodes, have we done a summary of five sentences for the whole book? Because I, th- I feel like we tried that once. I don't know. But well, we're missing that this time. Well, sure. Nathan I've come one. a little bit prepared. Oh, Kristen's already read all of my notes. I have not. I've only read the first word of each line. <laughs> Did just, you figure out what hidden just, message was spelled out by read, reading just the first word of each line? I just read the capitalized words. That's it. Oh. <laughs> They're the ones I can't look away from. Uh, but if you have something that you'd like to start us off with. I do have a five-sentence whole book summary. All right. Now, I know last time I was being a little bit goofy, and I, like, pretended that I made that I'd pulled sentences from the book, but really they were just made-up sentences, and it would be a real waste of all of our time if I were to repeat that a second time. <laughs> And so this time I just pulled real sentences that are actually found in the book to summarize the book. Are, no, these are real sentences. These are real sentences. They the each right now have a noun and a verb. Sometimes several. Do you have page notations for uh, where uh, these came from? <laughs> um, yes, but it's only coming from Sparks Notes. <laughs> okay. So, why don't you go ahead and kick... I am so prepared. (laughs) Go ahead and kick us off, then. Okay. Sentence number one. It was quiet. Too quiet. Except for the sound of Jill weeping over the death of her friend, which was pathetic. Too pathetic. (laughs) Please don't laugh at the jokes. (laughs) Drinian gasped. There are two types of women. Snakes and moms. And I'm afraid we're all out of moms. (laughs) 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 Gotta pause there. (laughs) This is gonna be like long pauses. (laughs) Now this is owl racing. I'm loving this. Summarizing very thoroughly. Uh-huh. <laughs> You're about to hear two hisses. The first hiss is the sound of a serpent. And the next hiss is a second serpent. That one, lo- that one lost me a little bit there, though. <laughs> <laughs> Where was that? <laughs> when did when, that happen in the book? <laughs> it was when he was going to turn into a serpent when he was tied on the chair. Oh, okay. There you go. See, it's actually in the book. That is uh, good. 
The last of the gnome lights went out and darkness overwhelmed them. But it's always darkest before dawn. Treader. <laughs> I'm glad you it's didn't always, do the same bit twice. It's always darkest <laughs> before things go pitch black. <laughs> so I felt like that well summarized the book really got you through the main thing. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Yeah, I, I think this is Owl Racing was my favorite one. Yes. Uh... Okay, so... I, I think that we're all out of moms. <laughs> you know, Lewis was ahead of his time with this sort of writing. Yeah. he's It's it's amazing when you go back and really study the text, how you see those tropes appear in later texts, and you realize they all came from Lewis. All of them. All of them. Yeah, there was none of that in, like, Hamlet or Shakespeare in general. or Right, right. Well, I mean, you know, like they were kind of, like, calling forward... You know how when you watch the first season of Arrested Development, after you've watched the whole thing, you kind of see where they were setting up gags that would happen later? No. Yes, Kristen's not familiar. Oh. Well, it's like Hamlet. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right. So I might watch it now. <laughs> it is very much like Hamlet. I know there's a group of people that are offended by that statement, but I'm not sure who. <laughs> <laughs> Probably... Uh, <laughs> either Arrested Development fans or Shakespeare fans, but I'm not sure which one. <laughs> it's actually Play Within Play fans. Oh, yeah. Uh, so what we usually do is we have a list of topics that we, you know, kind of touch on in no particular order, and we just talk about themes and motifs in the book. Uh, I wanted to open up with something that we did not discuss at all at any point, which is the dedication to this book. To Nicholas Hardy. To Nicholas Hardy. Which I have in my notes from my first First episode description <laughs> discussion, which means we probably did talk about Nicholas Hardy. We did not, because I, I remember looking this up, and I this is unfamiliar to me. Uh, is he uh, your favorite Hardy boy, or? I was going to make a joke, but I couldn't remember the names of the Hardy boys. <laughs> it's Jeff and Matt. <laughs> okay. Wrestling fans look at yes. that. <laughs> um, anyway, so looking this up, uh, Nicholas Hardy was a random eight-year-old boy mm-hmm. that just kind of was in the periphery of Lewis's life because mm-hmm. he was the son of one of Lewis's good friends. Yep. You say it like we've discussed this. We I don't know if we've discussed we it, but not. I've done the research yeah. on it. I did it for the first. Uh-huh. And there's a, there's a fun factoid. There is a version of The Silver Chair, which was uh, Nicholas Hardy's original copy that he was gifted, which is the only one of the Narnia books that was ever signed by Lewis using the name Jack. Huh. Whoa. Whoa. And uh, as a man of 66 years old, he recently sold that book for about $13,000. Oh, Nicholas did. Yes, Got Nicholas it, did. not Jack. Yeah, the, no. The, not the dead guy. Yes. Lewis, Lewis, Lewis came back from the dead to sell one autographed copy of a book. <laughs> We're just like, you know what? It's expensive up there. I need a little scratch. <laughs> I stopped having caffeine a week ago. I don't know what you guys are doing. What? Uh, so I thought it was important to point out Nicholas Hardy. Cool. Yeah. He's a person. He's still alive. Why do Why is know he not why? a guest on the podcast? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we could call him up and see and see what happens. <laughs> I'll make that my next pseudonym. <laughs> uh, I mean, I don't know who the last battle's dedicated to, but if it's a, like another young person, it might be. This, this might be the only person who has a dedication that is still along the living. There is none on there. Wow. Whoa. Not in your book, at least. It actually... Wait, let me see. Huh. 
It actually says, I'd like to dedicate this book to myself. I love you very much. I couldn't have done this without you. <laughs> oh. There you go. I like how on an audio medium you still had to pantomime uh, opening the book and... Um, <laughs> I was not to read something. I was holding the actual book. I wasn't pantomiming <laughs> it. I have a dedication to my craft. That's, that's the method right there. Uh, so anyway, Kristen, you have a whole page of notes. Nathan, you have a whole page of notes. I have pretty much nothing other than the stupid facts to share about the canceled silver chair movie. So, if one of you'd like to kick us off on a discussion about this book. Nathan, you're the guest. Uh, I want to dive right in to what we think the biggest theme of the book is. Darn, I didn't write theme anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so for me, I was thinking... Wait, wait, wait. Should we, should we all say it on the count of three? <laughs> Boy, what do we think it is? Yeah. One, one <laughs> two, two, three. Sammy. Dumbledore. <laughs> Sorry, Chris, I didn't hear you. You said bullying. Yes. I said sanity. Okay. Nathan said Dumbledore. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's the theme that... <laughs> it's the theme that keeps on giving. That's right. Mm-hmm. <sighs> uh, I was thinking about the four signs and, like, why they matter and why they're such a central part of the book and why they keep referencing back <clears throat> and how that might tie into the theme. And it's interesting that, from my perspective, not only did they fail the first three signs, they were not able to actually complete them. I think, for sure, the first one they couldn't have done. Mm-hmm. I, I, don't, I don't think that there's any way that Eustace could have gone and greeted Caspian or known Caspian. Caspian X. Yeah. I don't know why you guys have never said Caspian X. It's the coolest part of his name. <laughs> Caspian X. King Caspian. Um, the Seafarer? What's his little tag? I don't know. Something boring? Not um, yet. Not as cool as X. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Then the second sign was... To go straight to the giants. Yeah, to find the ruined city. Yes, Which right. they did. But they, they didn't. didn't know that they were in the ruined city because of the snow. Right. But then they also didn't even go straight to there. They like They did they, I mean they went through they went it to, to go the, to Harfang. So They went to the owls, they did the whole thing there, they went to the marsh. Yeah, I mean like, they couldn't they, went, they needed they the information could, exactly. to get there. They yeah. couldn't have gone straight there. Yeah. And so maybe if they talked to Caspian he would have said, Oh, I know where the ruined city is at. And stuff like that. But then they wouldn't have been able to do that. Which means they wouldn't have been able to do the second thing either. Hmm. Okay. And then following the inscription on the stone, they kind of needed the perspective of being in Harfang to read it. Like, exactly. Otherwise they would have to just like follow the lines on the ground. Right. So there was no way for them to do any of those three. They were destined to fail. I've always I've always felt that way about the third sign that they had to be in Harfang to read the the, the stone. Yeah, that's true. I've always felt that way. Right. Even uh-huh. from the first exposure I had to this, which was the BBC film. But if they had talked to Caspian right away, 
maybe he would have like conscripted the owls to help them further and been like, all right, the owls are going to fly you guys there. Beeline straight to the ruined city from owl top. They see the, uh, the message. Maybe. And then they have to figure out how to get under it without running away from giants. Yeah. Yeah. At this which is a, point, this is a scenario. At which point we pick up the story exactly where we found it. <laughs> and none of it actually mattered in the end. Right. So like, why did we have the three signs that they would fail if they don't matter? And anyway, they were they were going to follow that way anyway. Like yeah. everything they did was just the most natural thing for them to do. I think that them recognizing the fact that they had failed the first three signs prompted them to follow the fourth one. Right. When maybe they would have been a little more wary had everything been going just smooth and dandy. But that's the only thing I can offer you there. I, I, I think that's, and I think that for me, that's key to unlocking whatever that theme is, mm-hmm. which might be just like the idea that like mistakes aren't evil because evil has to be on purpose and so mistakes are just a mistake you make and a lesson to learn and so instead of being like oh i'm a failure because i you know set out to do this or set out to do that and i didn't do it but instead they learned something from that and that gave them the tools they need to succeed where they really needed to which is with the fourth sign yes so i and i agree like i feel like regardless as long as they didn't fail the fourth sign like the only other help that I feel like they could have gotten from Caspian besides, like, directions to Harfang is, like, an army to go with them. But then, like, how helpful would that have been in trying to actually, like, read the third sign? Then they would have started a war with the giants. You know, but would they the have thing. gotten there faster before it snowed? Yeah. And would they then have had an easier time recognizing... The ruins as ruins, they probably would have gotten there faster at a minimum having a horse or something, you know, if, yeah. if there was some non-talking horses in Narnia that they could <laughs> ride on. Yeah. I don't know. It's a shame. Yeah. We didn't encounter any giant horses up there. No giant horses. Yeah. Yeah. No yeah. giant dogs either. The giants had regular sized dogs. I was really disappointed by the lack of giant wildlife. Yeah, especially mm-hmm. when Puddleglum talked about like all the giant snakes and centipedes and stuff that yeah. would probably be around. Didn't see a single one. What a shame. Disappointment. We did see Father Time, though. The spell worked. The spell worked. <laughs> so, I do, um, so, with the signs, is there anything else that we needed to go over on the signs? Well, I guess, like, so then the theme that yeah. you bring from that is just the idea that, is like, it's more of a lesson than a theme. It's like the lesson of, you know, taking things in stride and, yeah. like, using missed opportunities as learn as opportunities to learn yeah and that failure isn't that failing doesn't make you a failure that's right as i said to a barista at two in the morning one night (laughs) as he talked about feeling like a failure and i was like yo failing doesn't make you a failure valuable life lessons kristen while i was doing homework at a 24-hour starbucks uh so uh, I, I guess it's just a, a lesson that I wish I'd like learned. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a big part of it. But then also, like as far as overarching themes, that's definitely one of them. But I feel like there's also like a theme of emotional regulation, but in a weird way. 
Okay. Where, like, we open the book with Jill crying behind the gym, mm-hmm. and we have this journey of Jill, like, being quiet and not blubbing. But, like... We're doing something else idiotic. Or, yeah, we're doing anything else idiotic. <laughs> but, like, we introduced her crying behind the gym, and so I feel like there is at least an attempt on Lewis's part to make that, like, some coming-of-age story for Jill, and that there's personal growth in that as she, like, learns how to manage... Things. Right. I think there's a, I think that could be, I wrote down how many times does Jill cry? Mm. Because I think that's like a like milestone that she crosses of like, here she cries and now we're entering a different set piece and now she cries and now we're entering a different stage of the story. So I feel like those, just from a literary perspective, are like, oh, this is where I'm denoting where the story shifts a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. And it definitely, um, I wrote, Jill's journey from crying behind the gym to dot, 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 not crying, question mark. <laughs> and then I put horse whisperer because she has this moment of like triumph where she gets to do something <laughs> and be good with horses. Yeah. But, um, it's yeah. what every girl wants to do. <laughs> yeah. She's wanna, a horse girl. I want to ride horses. Yeah. I want to have a pony. You're, you're, yeah, it's just horse. And then you can choose snake or mom. Yeah, snake or mom. <laughs> Those are your options. This is a noob game of rock, paper, scissors. Are pretty <laughs> horse, snake, or, or horse, mom. snake, mom. <laughs> um, is mom, mom. beat horse? <laughs> no. <laughs> mom doesn't beat the horse. Mom eats horse. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> the horse tramples the bomb. Anyways. Because yeah. that's the strong well, woman doing something useful besides just being mom. So anyway. Uh, no, I think that's a good point because I think uh, there's this is definitely Lewis's most direct, I don't want to say assault, but critique on uh, modern education mm-hmm. in this book. Which he has and, a lot of. Yeah. critique on yeah. education in general but yes this is a very direct yeah. one and and looking up more about what he was kind of lampooning here with the experiment house thing it was very much about the idea that came about like in the mid 20th century of this like feelings based education and hmm. like these new way of people being like well why, why don't we let the children do what they feel they're good at like we're not going to make them learn math and french and all these things let's let's do what do they feel like you're at like, which is why they bring up the point in the book of, oh, hey, the bullies don't have something wrong with them. They're interesting psychological cases because, no, there's nothing wrong with what they're choosing to do. They're, they feel like they need to bully the other children. Hmm. And it was this very free environment of, like, let's let them lead the education, which is what Lewis is critiquing here. Which is weird and because so, he's also the one who's like, no, like, they should have direct mentors and learn one skill or trade, like... But they should be made to do it. Like, we don't care what they want. <laughs> well, I yeah, I don't know. I wonder, because, okay, so when you guys have been talking about... I haven't gotten to weigh in on the education thing yet. Uh-huh. Um, but I've always been like, is Lewis actually anti-education or modern school? Or is Lewis trying to be a cool person for kids. And so he's like, oh, what do kids hate? They hate school. So you know what? You know what's a good ending to the story? No more school! <laughs> like, it's summertime forever, and that sort of thing. And so he's just, 
thinking about like what the ultimate cool fun fantasy for kids is as a like 80 year old professor <laughs> that's possible i think it might be both yeah i mean he, he is trying to appear uh, appeal to children here to a certain extent but like also has gone on record saying that he just hates modern schooling with a passion and I, so i wonder like is he pushing for because you were saying, like, he's against, like, feelings-based education or whatever. Uh-huh. But then it feels like he wants feelings-based education because he's like, he's like, oh, you need to teach fantasy and you need to teach, like, mysticism and stuff like that. And you've just gone to just pure facts. Uh-huh. And so education is hard facts and that's why it's bad. And so then that's consistent with why, like, Puddleglum is like, oh, it's better to believe a good story than a true story at the end of the book. Mm -hmm. And so that ties in with this, like, oh, there's magic in the world, and why is education forgetting magic? And so I wonder if that's, like, what he's against or something else. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of it is just his desire that everybody engage in fantasy yeah which i don't know but i mean from a psychological standpoint i wonder what that says about lewis where he's just like no everybody needs fantasy mm-hmm. right well uh i mean i i, I don't know that was really good i don't have a response <laughs> to that yet it's like that uh, that does challenge my preconceived notions here uh where he does seem to be of two minds about it uh, a couple of articles I read did mention that this is also largely a response to Lewis's own struggles with bullying and how, you know, he didn't necessarily grow up in this kind of school environment, but still had issues with being bullied and feeling insecure a lot as a child. And so this is his, you know, not necessarily revenge fantasy, but... I mean, I think it is definitely a- is a revenge <laughs> fantasy because he, like, in all these other instances... He's like, oh, and everybody like learned to be at peace with one another, and then in this, this book, he's like, and then I, yeah, it's just like <laughs> the end of this book is like straight out of Inglorious Bastards. <laughs> at the same time, though, the end of this book is showing Aslan caring for things in this world mm-hmm. in a way that he hasn't done yet. Lewis hasn't shown Aslan crossing over into this world or doing anything to influence this world. And here he sent Caspian here to, like, go help them chase away the bullies. Right. Well, in this, we have alternate universe Aslan in this world, which, of course, is, you know, Aslan's Jesus, right? Yeah. We haven't (laughs) haven't brought up that line in a while. (laughs) Yeah! (laughs) Woo! Bingo! <laughs> we need an air horn sound effect right there. Uh, no, I think it's, no, that's the that's the odd, everybody at home being like, yeah, you said it. <laughs> that's something of a heat seeker. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. This this is alternate universe Aslan, which Leo. In opposition to Star Trek rules, he doesn't have a mustache. And when you... (laughs) (laughs) No, in all the alternate universes, like, they show that it's the alternate universe version by them having a mustache. Okay, I'm thinking, like, Star Trek rules is, like, 
you know, observe, don't get involved. And so you're saying this is opposite because he's like showing up on Earth and getting oh. involved. No, no, no. He's saying like the alternate universes in Star Trek. Right. Um, with that said, though, the, the idea that Lewis keeps talking about where this is not an allegory, like... It's obviously an allegory, but Lewis is very ardent about the fact that this is not an allegory. This is a supposition. Suppose that there was a world with talking animals. What would the Christ figure, what would that story come out like in that world without saying that it's Aslan's Jesus? Mm-hmm. He's saying if there was a Christ figure there, how would that come across? How would that story unfold so that it takes the pressure off of the allegory? Uh-huh. So we don't have to have one-on-one, one-to-one parallels. Yeah. With that said, though, if there was another Christ figure in another universe that the kids could get into, why would he do anything to influence their experience here? I don't, I don't get it. Are you proposing a Aslan versus Jesus death match? Yes. I want to know which one of them is allowed to influence these kids' lives. All of these kids that keep going back and forth. Like I just picture kind of this awkward phone call where like Aslan's in the wood between worlds, like a, looking into a pool, like FaceTiming Jesus, and he's just like, Man, what's what's going on over there? See, but why are you he... letting those kids in the school? Like, why is school still existing in your universe, bro? Come on. <laughs> Come on, we got rid of that so long ago here. Um, that I've had to get rid of it three times. It just keeps coming back. <laughs> it's like a it's like a weed. Um, with that though, the um, when Aslan says to Lucy, "You'll know me there, but you'll know me by a different name." So, like that does kind of imply that it's the same person. So mm-hmm. then, what is the effort there? Is it to be like, hey? Aslan Jesus cares about the little daily things and also the grand scheme of leadership in this other world. Yeah. Is it to show, like, the differences of, like, caring a big and little? I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, it's a good Something thing. Something I read on a website up. somewhere. <laughs> is this on Sparks Notes? No. <laughs> okay. But I did, is Experiment House a frame story? where the story that's happening in Narnia is telling the same events of what's happening in Experiment House. Uh-huh. Where this change in leadership that's happening in Experiment House at the end of this, is that similar to this change in leadership that's happening in Narnia? Or is it just a journey of Rillian from the Queen's control to his own sanity again? Okay, I think you just answered... I think we can get any, even deeper in that. So here... So I, what I don't the, have more notes on that, though. <laughs> it was just a question. Well, where does the plot start? Because this isn't just one frame story. There's the experiment house framing. There's the cliff. There's the Aslan's world. Aslan's, Aslan's world Mountain. on the cliff, yeah. Uh-huh. There's Care Paravel. There's Care Paravel. There's Owl City. Owl City. <laughs> and I just want to make myself believe. <laughs> <laughs> that planet Earth turns slowly. Right. That planet Narnia turns, kind of, maybe, I don't know. I don't know. Does it turn? Does the disc know. need to turn? <laughs> if you got, if it's got to keep going so the dog can catch it, it does. <laughs> uh, or does it start in the marsh? Because that's where the adventure begins. Or does it start when they get to 
anything else after that. Like, because there is even within the marsh and that adventure with Puddleglum, once Puddleglum is their guide and it shows up, mm-hmm. they get into some hijinks. But once they meet the witch, stuff starts happening there. They're like, you can you can call like the core of this them getting out of Underworld. Like, and then everything yeah, I, I outside like, of that. I feel like, like freeing the prince yeah. is the... Yeah, I mean, like, that's the climactic part of it, but that's the core story. Is right. like, they get into Underworld, and they meet the prince, and all of that. Like, and that is this hell analog, where they're like, oh, they're in the Underworld, and it's very much seems like an allegory for hell, where they have to cross the ocean, and very much the sticks metaphor, blah, blah, blah. Is it... Hell or is it purgatory? That's a that's a question. That's the, I mean, but like we, we can keep talking about the frame story yeah. issue, but like, I mean, if it's hell, there's a deeper hell that the gnomes live. No, in. that's not that's <laughs> see, and that's the that's the part that the lighting there, the witches' light in underworld that influences and depresses everybody, which may or may not be the force of enchantment. We don't know, but like they talk about the light a lot, mm-hmm. and the light is this very important imagery in this book as a whole where even when they're fighting her enchantment in the room with the fire and the fire turns green the light changes and they start appealing to oh but in overworld oh aslan oh the sun the light and she says what is it you're just using it and you know Hmm. it's all about this light imagery and when we do have bism open up we see a new light uh-huh. It's a different light that's coming from Bism. Yeah. And so even the gnomes that don't want to see the sunlight because they don't like the sky want to be in their own home light with the fires of Bism and the growing gems. And the creepy salamanders. Yep. And is the light, which is green... Yes? No? Yes. Okay. So the light, which is green... Well, all of the light in Underworld is like super gray and... Okay. I've been trying to think about, like, why green? Oh, why green? Because, well, so let me put this out there and then we can get into that. Because uh, there's, like, the green of, like, as a seductive color. Mm -hmm. And so then a big theme throughout this book is things aren't what they seem. And so the things that are seem nice, like a yummy feast might not be so nice. Yeah, I just wonder if that, like, that light, that greenness represents that, like, seduction that, like, brings people away from what's true and what's real. Um, Within medieval English folk stories, green is a highly symbolic color, Mm -hmm. not of growth and recycling like we think of today, but in the idea of... um, Green green is very much associated with dark magic in okay. medieval folk stories and things like that. With so within the context of like the English culture and at the time of writing, green is very much obviously an evil color. We'd have stories like Sir Ga- Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, where the Green Knight is this evil man. He is this monstrous, wild, uncontainable. Um, Man and the green is very much that symbol of wild, dark magic, danger, um, devils, that kind of thing. So that color green is very much like a red flag, if you will, for for bad things. And even <laughs> we have Drinian point out, like 
when Rillian first shows him the ladies, like, oh, no, that green lady's evil. Mm -hmm. And, like, that's very much within line of that kind of medieval folk tradition in in English culture. Okay. It's also, like, historically been associated with, like, envy and jealousy and, like, these negative emotions, which I'm curious as to when this cultural shift actually happened. Because, like, when do we go from green being this very evil color to, like, green means go, and green is yes, and good. And like, life. When did, yeah, and life. When it's did not this, wild, it's life. Yeah, when did this shift happen? Um, Was it after the invention of penicillin, where people were just like, oh, this mold is good for you? Yeah. Okay, so getting back to clarity, uh-huh. I have another example of how clarity is used in the book. Which is, and maybe you can help me piece this together with the lowest world that we don't actually get to. Okay. Because when they are in Aslan's country, they are up high and they see things very clearly. People, they see that death is an illusion. No, no, no. When you say clarity, I, I'm relating it to sanity, too. And okay. the whole Hamlet parallel. So right. I'm, that's where I'm thinking. So go ahead and... Okay, yeah, so, yeah, things are most clear in Aslan's country, and like I said, I think that's really symbolic in um, death being an illusion or, like, just a state of mind when you're in Narnia, because then they're like, oh, he's actually alive, even though you thought he was dead. Mm -hmm. Um, And then when you're in Narnia, things are a little clouded, but not quite as... you know, you can still see Aslan's influence and in things and stuff like that. And then when they get to the Underland, it's like, is that the word they use? Yeah, Underland. Uh, underworld, Underland, they use many, many terms. It's, okay. it's very fluid. <laughs> it's, Lewis is the most fluid guy ever. <laughs> um, yeah, so when they're down there, things are very clouded. You know, they easily slip into when she does her magic. It's just very easy for everybody to, like, you know, have no idea even what's real and what's not. Mm-hmm. And then are you wanting to go deeper towards Bism as well? Well, if we're talking see... about, like, those levels change clarity as well as, you know, distance from Aslan's country. I think that it has more to do with things growing, like life. Where we have, we talk about being in the woods and hearing things in the woods on the mountain with Aslan and meeting Aslan there. And in Narnia, we travel through the lands and we've got the sunlight and we've got the marshes and the snow and all of these things. And then when we get to the underworld of the witch, it's very dark. It's very much separated. And then we have a step down to Bism where we have light again and we have growth and we have living things. Yeah. And I think that it's almost like there's a there's a cocoon of darkness <laughs> where there's So what you're saying is below Bislam is second Aslan's country. Yes. <laughs> Sweet. Yeah. Well, if you want to go with the admittedly terrible theory that uh, that Narnia is a disc, um <laughs> I thought it was all crater. Yeah. Yeah, you know, this stupid thing that's actually in the books about Narnia being a disc world, then we we can kind of have this, like, layered shape where, like, yes, you have Aslan's country up here and then Narnia, then, like, the center of the world as far away you can as you can get from Aslan is this dark place of Underland, and then as you start going toward the other side, which who knows what's over there, then you get into Bism, and then whatever's above Bism is, like, the, other the opposite side. side of Narnia, which... 
Yeah, because Underland is referred to as the center. Yes. Uh I think so. So what's lower than that? It's going out again. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. 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 Not a disc. No. (laughs) Unless it is. Except it still seems that in that even going down to Bism, gravity is still going that way. Yeah, it does so it seem that way because like, they do jump down yeah, into Bism. So they haven't like reversed and have so <laughs> See <laughs> I'm gonna jump and just float here for a second. Uh-huh. But why is Father Time in the underworld area? I was gonna bring that up. Like what what are all these creatures that are here? Yeah, there's a lot of things like stuck there. Yeah. I don't know. Is it just a place of stuckness? Is is wait? Is time stuck? Whoa, dude. Wait, is that why Narnia time what runs screwy? Because Father Time can't do his job because he's been asleep. I believe I might have I brought this up on the first episode that he's introduced in. Is that maybe that's why time runs differently? Maybe a linear time in Narnia just isn't a thing. <laughs> but with all of this. On the idea... Because he's in jail. Not just of clarity, but taking it to sanity. Mm -hmm. Where we have this kind of clarity of purpose with Aslan. And this mission and these tasks. And then we have a clouding of that. Where there are other things that get in the way. To the point where they're possibly driven insane. By the witch's magic and enchantment. In the same way that Rillian has been, where he was just infatuated with her and has, to, that you could say, driven insane mm-hmm. by her control. And he's, you know, laughing and talking and doing all of these things that really creep Jill out and make her really uncomfortable as if she's facing mental illness. Hmm. And then we have this kind of lifting of that enchantment where she goes, oh, he looks right again. So, I don't know, like, taking it as that kind of story and being like, all right, well, we're, what we're finding is the gnomes are getting back to their purpose. They've been enchanted, and they're going home right. and back to their purpose and back to their, their place of being, where they're being freed from this enchantment, and they're returning to that. I don't know. Yeah. That's... So are you saying that, like, when the enchantment is lifted, there's a level of sanity that occurs? Well, or I think, is it... I mean, specifically I'm talking about Rillian with the sanity thing because it has very much this kind of Hamlet vibe where he's like, no, I'm going to go take over Narnia and this witch is, like, convincing him to go and kill his father and destroy Narnia and right. rule it. Um, where he's very much got this, like, I'm going to go do the thing. And then, you know, Ophelia dies. And then we have him being like, oh, well. Okay, there's a throwaway line in the book of Rillian looking vaguely like Hamlet. And you're just running with this theme. I'm saying that it is, it's an illusion in the text. It's an illusion that's directly made in the text. And there is very much... Something that you can take from that within this story with the sanity thing and the way that he was being influenced to go take over Narnia. Uh Uh-huh. And to, like... Because personality-wise, Puddleglum is the Hamlet. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) A little bit, yes. Now, Puddleglum, we've talked a lot about Puddleglum as a magic user and we've kind of leaned heavily into that. Yeah. What if we took that away from Puddleglum and what... No. Just as a thought experiment. <laughs> what if we took that away from Puddleglum and what does that lend Chris us to see... got up and walked away. 
I I <laughs> want to I want to read like I want to talk about the courage of Puddle Glum when he's read through a lens of earnestness. Mm. Where everything that he says is not magic, but an earnest concern and fear. Okay. And that he is still the one who's driving them forward. He's still the one leading them. He's still the one taking them, watching over them. Expressing all of this fear and concern, but still having the courage to continue forward on this mission to the point where he's even the one that stamps out the fire. He's the one who, like, breaks the enchantment. (laughs) Yes. With his big duck feet. Uh, I mean, I think, I don't know, I, I originally started reading the magic stuff into Puddle Glum as a way to make his character less annoying, uh, because if, if he's not doing that, he's just, like, the worst cynic, and, like, a person who would be hell to go on a two-day trip with, much less one that lasts weeks. But how do you feel about Eeyore? <laughs> well, Eeyore. well, you see, all the Winnie the Pooh characters are just allegories for mental illness, and this is Christopher Robin's struggle with, yeah, okay. But we're not getting into that. This, um, isn't a, this isn't a Winnie the Pooh psychosis podcast. Not yet, it's not. That is another children's literature that we could cover as we dive deep into the many books of the Winnie the Pooh series. Yep, that'll be our, that'll be our next series. Can you take that again and say the many adventures of Winnie the Pooh? <laughs> uh, but no, I, I think having finished the book, even without the magic stuff there... Puddle Glum is probably the most interesting character in the series so far. Hmm. Like that's a broad statement. Yeah, I, I, because he's. I like Wynn, personally. Yeah, Wynn's Wynn's fun. Bree's fun. But as as far as like complex, like well-rounded characters that have a journey goes, I think Puddle Glum is up there. Mm-hmm. Like the only the only one I think might be more fully com- fleshed out. Fully fleshed out might be Lucy. Poor Edmund. Lucy Lucy doesn't have a whole lot of change happen. She's just always constant. Yeah. Lucy's very much like yeah. a constant. Like Edmund's good. She hasn't transitioned to horse yet. Yeah. <laughs> she hasn't arrived there yet. Yeah. I mean, Edmund's good, but also like Edmund isn't really a character in this book. Yeah. No, no, but... No, no, not Edmund. Um, sorry. I'm talking about scrub, in, the, scrub. in the series as a whole, characters yeah. who have a development arc. Like, so let's 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 recap there. Because Lucy's also not in this book. Yeah. No, <laughs> development art. Can we just name people that aren't in this book? <laughs> I'll Thomas, start. wait, no. <laughs> Fred Rogers. <laughs> um, Eustace. Eustace is the one I was talking about, which uh, I think he'd be up there in terms of complexity as well. But he stops being a character here. So, I mean, Jill is much more of one. I feel like if this book has a protagonist, it's Puddle Glum, and I'll stand by that controversial statement. Uh, because I feel like he's, he, like you said, he's very much the one driving the plot forward, and he's leading them despite being this terrible cynic. Uh, so yeah, I don't know. Like him a lot. I'm glad you do. <laughs> I responded. You brought up Puddle Glum, and what, is he his character, and I responded to you. What do you want? <laughs> A setup for us to say something else. <laughs> See what I'm working with here? Uh-huh. All right. Anyway, so back to symbolism. Let's go ahead and talk about water. We talked water? about light. We talked about green. Let's talk about water. 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 But is Puddle Glum a spider or a frog? And that's the question. Puddle Glum is a Yoda. Are, a tall Yoda. Green. 
All right. <laughs> no, no, okay. But going back to sanity, going back to sanity, I had one other thing that I wanted to talk about on that because it kind of tracked into another note that I had. Okay. So, in his writing Being in Nothingness, Jean-Paul Sartre, or Sartre, <laughs> um, wrote, I'm sorry, I, lit theory was good. my favorite subject in college, this so I good. have to get into theory here for a second. Okay. He writes about the concept of bad faith, specifically in terms of self-deception. And I really felt like there was a lot of my sanity take that was coming from this, so I really wanted to talk about it. Um, This idea of self-deception that he writes about specifically talks about two forms of self-deception. One being um, the belief that yourself is not like who you actually are. Being like, all right, I'm I'm not what I am. Like, I am king of the world. That's my belief, and I've deceived myself that. I am not the king of Narnia, is what Rillian has deceived himself to believe. I am just this man here that the queen has accepted. The other form of deception that he talks about is the self as an object, or a role, or a job, or something. Like, I am my job. And that's the only thing that gives me value. And that that ultimately, both of those, remove freedom. Those beliefs and those self-deceptions take freedom away from you because you've convinced yourself that you aren't what you are or that you are something that is an object or a task which then takes freedom away from you because you've defined yourself in a way that is not true. And I feel like that whole concept of, like, the bad faith as presented by Sartre is very much um, presented in Rillian and this whole enchantment. And him coming into his own and coming into his true self and his identity. Kind of along the lines of what I was saying earlier with purpose. But, like, it's very much this movement towards him finding him true, his true self. I think that ties into what we were talking about, about like looks can be deceiving as a theme and something, because Mm -hmm. here you've got the idea of who I am right now or how I'm presented right now or how I feel right now isn't the whole of who I am or who I could be. Because Rillian is good. Yes. And he becomes Snake. He doesn't, though. He talks about potentially. Like, he says... I become a monster, uh-huh. and I become a raving lunatic, and I and I don't know myself, and I right. have to be locked in this chair. Yeah, which is when he's becoming him true self. Mm-hmm. So he, in his enchanted state, is saying, "My true self is a monster. Right, is a snake. Okay, because he doesn't actually ever turn into anything. Okay, there is only." We can assume that there's only ever one snake, but there's the snake that killed his mother, and then there's the witch who then becomes a snake and is. Yeah. He he declares, oh, that was obviously the same snake that but killed he, my mother. But he, we don't believe him? Well, I mean, we watch him undergo his transformation to his true self, and he appeals to Aslan. Mm-hmm. And he says in the name of Aslan, and he fulfills the fourth sign. Mm-hmm. And they release him. Right. And he doesn't become anything at okay. any point after that. Okay. But see, it could have been a good snake because, like, his mom had to die for him to go on this quest and become, you know, go through his redemption arc. 
And so if we're talking about predestination and how like oh yes. they never were never supposed to succeed in the first three signs. To spend ten years <laughs> underground would make him a better ruler. So does he believe that he is a snake in the in that time? Like is his enchanted self believe that his unenchanted self is a is monster? A... He 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 doesn't. I don't think he he might use the word snake, but he believes that being locked in the chair will hold him, mm-hmm. and so. If you're being restrained in a chair, you have to be restrained in a very odd way to be snake form and still be restrained. Right. So, I don't know. I don't either. I haven't tried to restrain a snake recently. That is your fan art of a snake tied to a chair. Or don't. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Oh, I was started drawing. (laughs) Uh, So regardless, uh... So with the snakes, we have self-deception. Uh, I mean, going back but to... But also freedom. Like, that ties directly freedom. into freedom, too. But talking about, like, the main character of this book, Puddleglum... Well, okay. Talking about who's supposed to be the main character of this book, Jill, ostensibly, do we see her deceiving herself, like, as a continued theme there? Or what do you think? Because, like... I think that she doesn't know who she is yet. Like, I don't think she knows the strength that she has. I don't think she's found something to value about herself. And so she is just being bullied. Okay, tying it back into the, like, theme that I was talking about. We know that failure is just an opportunity to learn. But so Jill is all weepy and stuff. Maybe her weeping is that she believes that every misstep is catastrophic. Yeah. And so the clarity that she gets is the clarity that a misstep is just a learning opportunity. And so then she doesn't need to get into hysterics over this. Not so much. No. <laughs> but that she, but rather that she can have that perspe- perspective that is more positive. And so that's her clarity. Yeah. What about Eustace? Eustace doesn't learn anything cuz it's not his book. Yeah. I thought so. I just... He's just the guy that gets her there <laughs> to, into Narnia. True. So water's weird, huh? Yeah, tell me about water. <laughs> tell me about water. Well, is there anything else that anyone else wanted to say about? Uh, no, I think we, I mean, the, the main thing I wanted to touch on was like the education thing. We talked about your self-deception. We talked a little bit about bullying and overcoming that and strength. I mean, I feel like we could have talked more about Puddle Glum, but uh, that's for... It's for the Patreon. Does the light itself influence the people in Underworld? The mm-hmm. fires of hell, which is fire that Puddleglum stamps out. I mean, if you're if you're uh, if you're anyway. if you are going to talk about uh, self deception, I mean, I, I think we touched on this a little bit, but I think we have to bring up Puddleglum's big speech uh, that he does mm, about what he wants to believe versus yeah. what he can believe. Yeah, and I, I feel like that's kind of the core of the issue. Mm. Is that. I'd rather believe in something good. Yeah, and Nathan brings this up of, like, it being about a story. And that's going to, you know, that's his clarifying moment in the book. Where I was trying to find it to read it, but he he, was like, yeah, maybe you're telling me the truth. Maybe all that is false. But I'd rather believe in something that's good and false than something that's Mm -hmm. uh, the other way. (laughs) Negative and true. Which is a weird sentiment to write from a Christian apologist. It's a, it's kind of a weird point for, for Lewis to be making here, being like, so what if it isn't true? 
<laughs> yeah, I think it falls into him, like he's done in previous books, presenting Christian ideas that he doesn't necessarily subscribe to. Yeah. It's, this, it's kind of a Pascal's Wager type thing. One word. All you've been saying is quite right. I shouldn't wonder. I'm a chap who always liked to know the worst and then put the best face I can on it. So I don't deny any of what you've said. But there's one thing more to be said even so. Suppose we have only dreamed or made up all those things, trees and grass and sun and moon and stars and Aslan himself. Suppose we have. Then all I can say is that in that case, the made-up things seem a good deal more important than the real ones. Suppose this black pit of a kingdom of yours is the only world. Well, it strikes me as a pretty poor one. And that's a funny thing when you come to think of it. We're just babies making up a game, if you're right. But four babies playing a game can make a play world, which licks your real world hollow. That's why I'm going to stand by the play world. I'm on Aslan's side, even if there isn't any Aslan to lead it. And I'm going to live as like a Narnian as I can, even if there isn't any Narnia. So thanking you kindly for our supper, if these two gentlemen and the young lady are ready, we're leaving your court at once and setting out in the dark to spend our lives looking for the overland. Not that our lives will be very long, I should think, but that's a small loss if the world's as dull a place as you say. See, I don't know if that necessarily is saying this world is, like, it's better, I don't know. I think he's saying, he's just saying, well, if you're right, if you're saying that this world that we remember is false, then that doesn't make sense, almost. Because it sucks. Or because this world here sucks. Yeah. I don't know. I think I think it's more about, I think it's less about appealing to logic and saying it doesn't make sense, and more about just saying, my my heart would, would be happier looking for that world than staying here, so I'm going to go for it. Yeah, that makes sense. Which, I mean, if they are actually delusional and Narnia isn't real, then what is that saying? Anyway. Don Quixote. Yes. Um, well, have you seen, did you guys talk about Life of Pi when you... No. No? Okay. Have you seen that film? Yes. I have read the book. Okay. Maybe. I don't think I actually finished the book, but I've seen the film. But it comes to the same conclusion, basically. He yeah. tells this fantastical story, and then he's like, okay, so that... That was just a big metaphor, or whatever. But or what was would, it? Yeah. yeah, but what would you rather believe? Right, like... yeah. And that's just as frustrating. Yeah. <laughs> but it, cer- it certainly seems to have an appeal for certain people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, this two paragraphs is actually like Lewis's refutation of like the entirety of, of Hindu theology. Um, <laughs> he just dismisses it right away. We will avoid <laughs> suffering at all costs. Uh-huh. <laughs> Uh, we will keep our hearts happy yeah cool um i mean i think we've covered all the themes i wanted to talk about uh i have something i wanted to talk about that's extra textural or like how the book fits into the series rather okay and so i think that this book is the best argument for reading the books in chronological order Mm, okay and the reason is because when taken like this, we've already had the backstory. We've got this like forward momentum of like this next generation of kids now fully experiencing Narnia, and then we're going straight into the last battle. Whereas if you read them in publishing order, he's got this like forward momentum up to book four, mm-hmm. and then he bails. 
just and like, goes, yeah, and I it, really wanted to write that story that Rillian was singing about. <laughs> yeah, it's like, I feel like he was like, okay, I, I've got an idea of what I'm going to do for the last battle, but wouldn't seven books be cool? <laughs> and so then he just goes and does like filler, two filler books. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so like having that momentum of like the story just cold stopping just to backfill for two whole books and then you wrap it up versus the way we're going now where we've filled in the backstory along the way and then bam we'll go into the last battle well this is the case for us putting together like the machete order for reading the narnia books (laughs) um where no you're supposed to read portsonous boy first and And then you read you then know, you read Silver Chair. Supposed then to you read this number of chapters yeah. of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, <laughs> and then go in and read Horse and His Boy. And right. Then... Yeah, I think that I actually like that idea. <laughs> <laughs> or, like, yeah, going into. Um, yeah, you've said it. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Magician's Nephew not being the opening story, I think, is good. Yeah, having it be flashbacks or right. something. Right. Just but then like just the horse and his boy, the whole story should have been written in flashbacks. Would have been so much better. <laughs> yeah, we, we've talked about our rewrite projects for these a lot, which will never actually happen. Uh, but before we before we start wrapping up, I did want to share some uh, some fun things because, as we all know, uh, Disney or the powers that be were working on a Chronicles of Narnia movie series that got dropped right here at the Silver Chair. Because uh, they went through and did Voyage, they did Prince Caspian was the last one they made, and this one just kind of fell flat. I really like the way that you don't remember the order. I know, that was funny. Yeah. <laughs> Let me just leave that okay. there for you. Yeah, sure. Okay, so last was Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. <laughs> <laughs> so Disney, go ahead. Yes, uh, so this was something that was actually in the works. They were making a silver chair movie and then canceled it. Uh and I just found a few factoids about it that I thought would be fun and might add something to discussion of the book. So here's some facts. Um, so the Silver Chair film was supposed to be a reboot, according to the director, starting a new trilogy. Why? <laughs> so we'll get there Wait, in a second. What? It wasn't supposed to continue the story logically from Voyage. It was going to be a reboot of the franchise starting its own new trilogy. Uh, it was going to expand Jill's backstory outside okay. of the books because they didn't feel like there was enough weight given to why she was being bullied in the first place. You can do that in one scene. <laughs> and so they were you going... You don't need a film for that. So they were going to dramatically expand uh, her backstory. There's a couple like direct quotes from this article I want to read. Uh, one of them is about character ages. Uh, where this says, according to Lewis's timeline, both characters are nine years old. I think that's wrong. I think canonically they're like 10 or 11, but whatever. Mm -hmm. But this quote in the article says, uh, director Joe Johnston said Will Poulter, who was slated to play Eustace, was too old at the time. At the time of shooting, he was 24. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's a... So... I just imagine, like, you doing his mid-twenties playing a, uh, a ten-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> we gotta reshoot this scene. You just didn't shave this morning. <laughs> uh, while they were uh, writing the film, there was apparently an online poll they put up to have people vote on the name of the Lady of the Green Cardle because they were gonna give her a name in the movie. And they were gonna let fans decide what it was. You know, unlike Rillian's mom. <laughs> 
so there's that. Uh, and the the really interesting part I wanted to get to was just, I'm just going to read this entire quote here. Uh, Douglas Gresham, co-producer and stepson of C.S. Lewis, said, The Silver Chair would be a corker of a movie and called an early draft one of the best scripts he has seen for a Narnia movie. It would be a corker. <laughs> Could yeah. you be more English? <laughs> Four. Yeah, can you do that in your authentic <laughs> accent, please? But then, after a change in leadership at the studio, there was pressure to make it a girl power action movie. At that point, Gresham walked away, and the project petered out. I love that he's like, he's like, my father would never stand yes. for the girl power or anything. Wait, is he, is he Lewis's child? Step- uh, stepson. Stepchild. Yeah, okay. yeah, that's what I thought. Uh, but apparently he is now working with Netflix on developing a new right. Narnia series. Yeah. So those Gresham's. were fun factoids where Gresham was just like, nope, girl power, out. Yep. Done. I'm out. <laughs> he was too emotional to deal with that. Um. <laughs> Wait, here. So we're going to make this a more girl power movie. Oh, so she's going to be a snake? <laughs> Jill can't also be a snake. She's too young to be a mom. Um, <laughs> she's got to be a horse. <laughs> All right, we'll deal with it. At that point, Grisham said nay. <laughs> cool. Uh, so those are fun. Good times. night, folks. <laughs> so if, if if Narnia ever comes to Netflix, we'll uh, watch through those. To. Yeah, watch through those and go uh, into more discussion about that on the Patreon. Of course. Mm-hmm. Um, I so, got my card out. I'm ready to swipe. We just need a little card reader right here in the desk. Oh, uh, look for your square reader. It's not here. It's in the green box over there. I have two of them, actually. Uh, so if we're done with themes and, and discussion of the book... Uh, oh, no, we're not. Okay. Do you have anything else to share? I don't. All right. So As water. I said earlier. So water. Wait. I... <laughs> water is used through, is imagery throughout the book where there's a lot of transition that happens in and through water. Um, so when, are you just talking about Jill's tears or I'm talking about Jill's tears. Okay. <laughs> I'm talking about them flying into Narnia over the ocean. I'm talking about Caspian's little brief journey over the ocean and back again. I'm talking about them crossing the river over the giant bridge to get into the area where they meet the lady of the green kirtle. Um, I'm talking about the boat journey across the the ocean underwater. And I'm talking about, um, Caspian waking up in the river in Aslan's country and being resurrected in that river. Okay. So, um, all of these different water imageries are used throughout as very much this kind of transitional phase that's very common. Crossing a river, crossing an ocean is a very common image within literature to use to show a transition. We talked in our discussion about the chapter where they actually went across the ocean the Sunless Sea, um, we talked about the idea of the River Styx and this kind of idea of the voyage into the underworld. Um, but I wanted to take that and take it back to Aslan's country and talk about the river where Caspian comes into Aslan's country in the river. And this idea that within certain mythologies, this River of Styx is um, 
used to prepare people for the underworld where it removes their memories or like cleanses their memories mm-hmm. and that Caspian is being renewed into Aslan's country where he says like I'm I'm for here now like this is my country now versus like I'm not from Narnia anymore I'm from here and this image there where that is used but also this uh, image within Christian theology of baptism. So like the idea that Aslan is bringing Caspian up out of the water into his new life in Aslan's country. That's all I just wanted to talk. Just throw some of that imagery out there and just be like, hey, I saw some stuff in the book. That's cool. I like the idea because that connects with the underworld transition and the idea that, that that's a space between... A space between. Space between. A purgatory. Yes. <laughs> the space between. <laughs> to <Because> hell. The, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> because then they're like coming out of that purgatory into Aslan's country. As, as the as water the is rising and covering up all of the witches and pulling all of that evilness mm. back under the water. <laughs> but not all the way down. Not to that's them. back. Yeah, that's back out back again. Out again. <laughs> you keep going in one direction long enough, you come right back around. It's almost like it's a sphere. Well, I, I think mean, of it, also it works that way on a disc. Good. Is Narnia a uh, red blood cell? Ooh. It could it. be because then it has a raised edge. You can have your your crater theory. Narnia is a red blood cell, and the blood. It's the blood of Aslan. <laughs> Whoa. As Eustace pricked his paw. Yes. Whoa, dude. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Hey, hey. Stab me. <laughs> Why don't you stab me? Hey, hey. You should stab me. Why aren't you just doing it? Just do it. What's the matter? You're not going to stab me? For, for the Notice I'm here. not asking Kristen yeah. this, because she <laughs> definitely would. <laughs> For the, for, the, for the listeners, this is a really intense look on Nathan's face as he's asking this. I'm, I'm disturbed yet intrigued. <laughs> I've never had an intense look in my life. Um, Does anybody have any examples of other sarcastic, dis- depressive archetypes in English literature besides Hamlet, Eeyore, Puddleglum, and Marvin the Paranoid Android? Doctor Who in certain seasons. Uh-huh. The Doctor. Uh-huh. Uh, this is literature? Yeah. <laughs> Contemporary. There's a number of books. <laughs> there are books. <laughs> There's Bean. It was a written script at some point. <laughs> and how would you rank those characters? <laughs> Obviously, Chris puts Pogum last. Yeah. I, don't know. I love Marvin so much. Is I've he always... doing mar- magic? Is Marvin doing? Is it does the is are the sarcastic comments of the sarcastic <laughs> depressive archetype always magic in the in the era of Puddleglum? I might have to I might have to reread and and investigate because I I really do want to look into that because like that character is always seen as the one who's like unfounded in their concerns because. Nothing that they are afraid of ever happens, or right. nothing that they talk about ever happens. But reading all of those characters as like having this magic, mm-hmm. I like that idea. 
I mean, it, it, it ties into a lot of my old ideas about superstition, and, like, there's very much superstition surrounding the idea of speaking about things that are that's going to happen, or, like, if you say something you don't wish, and, like, knocking on wood, or, like... Yeah, or like just so, jinxing stuff in general, saying, oh, don't say that a good thing's going to happen, because now it won't happen, or, yeah. you know... Don't say it's slow today when you're working in a food service environment because it will not be slow anymore immediately. Yeah. yeah. Uh, my. It will be your fault. We went to the shoe store. Or my grandma and I went to the shoe store and she was about to get out of the car and she had socks next to her. And she said, if I take the socks in, there won't be any shoes for me to try out. But if I leave them here, I'll find some shoes that I want to try. And the whole time I just thought, why did you wear sandals today? <laughs> yeah. So on that note, um, before we wrap up here, uh, I have a tradition on the book wrap-up episodes where I have to review the book. Yes, you do. And give it a rating as a whole because I stopped doing that on a chapter-by-chapter basis. Yep. Uh, so that's what I do. I talk about the whole book. I review it, give it a rating out of one to five stars. Uh, but the stars are always something book themed. So Kristen, what am I rating this book out of? Aslan's Tears. Okay. <laughs> sure, we can do that. I forgot that this was a thing. I wasn't prepared. I'm no. usually <laughs> prepared for this with three or four options. Uh, all right. So Aslan's Tears. Yeah, because then we started with Jill crying, and then she, she cries over Caspian. It's like, oh, well, like, well, how much progress did you make on not crying? It's, it's just, Aslan's crying, Jill's crying, Caspian's dead. Jill doesn't even know Caspian. She's never even met him. But Jill isn't crying about her own failure. That's the progress. But is she crying over her own failure when she's being bullied? <laughs> yes. It's her... Her failure to, Don't, have you to not, not be cool. <laughs> have you ever not? Have you ever been bullied before? Yes. So you own that, right? I do. When somebody's bullying me, bullying me. That's because that person is broken. Yeah. Not because of me. Fully, fully on board with this line of thought. <laughs> with which one? Kristen's. Okay. <laughs> if someone is bullying me, it's because they have a problem. So when you not were me. When you were. Ten, you had the wherewithal to acknowledge that. No, I'm telling you now. Like, <laughs> right? No, I'm not talking about now. I'm talking about when you were a child and were How bullied. Bullied now. <laughs> She's talking about retrospectively, looking back. She sees Jackson's that those guys. <laughs> no. The um, guy, with the cat guy. <laughs> no. Yes, he does have two cats, but no, he's my employee. <laughs> That's always been a challenge for me. Is whenever somebody says something negative, I automatically, like, blame myself. And so, yeah. See, I don't automatically blame myself. I'm just like, yeah, I don't know. It makes sermons hellish. You can't, like, weigh if this message is actually about you or not. You're just like, well, I'll add that to my list of faults. (laughs) So anyway. So, so yeah, I, I think when most, I don't know, I can't say. For most Nathans, <laughs> when they were bullied as a child, uh, really own that as a self fault, as a like, oh, I did some. I the bullies have a point here, and it takes a lot of work to get past that and yeah. through that. Especially when the adults in your life tell you that the bullies are right. Yeah, that happened to me once. Well, there you go. <sighs> wow. 
A lot to unpack here. Um, so I'm going to review the book now. Um, <laughs> this isn't a uh, bully psychology podcast. No, yeah. I was a bully as a kid, though. Like, and that's that's the part where I think that there's a distinct difference. Is that like I was I was very much a bully. So you're empathetic to that. <laughs> where I'm just like, no, I'm the broken one who's hurting people. Like that's that's the part that I hold on to on that. Where I'm like. Yeah. Yeah. My any bullying I received most frequently had a very bigger age like separation where it was like someone much older bullying mm. me. And at that point I was always just like, well, I'm just weak and that's true because they're bigger than me. There's <laughs> nothing I can do about that. Yes. But knowing that I was a broken person hurting other people and being a bully definitely makes me like look at that situation and be like no i own the fact that i was a broken jerk hurting right. people like i'm just picturing kristen being like nine years old walking through a college campus and just getting bullied by juniors like it's a stupid kid doing here <laughs> no, was... yeah i feel like the, it was peers that went after me mm-hmm. whereas like because i was weird and so like was I'm no longer weird. I'm a normal person now. I'm a normal man. Can confirm. <laughs> Can confirm. He says emphatically with a lot of emotion. Normal man, damn it. I am not currently enchanted, nor have I ever been. Uh, Alright, so. Let him in. finish. He was oh, talking. Oh, okay. <laughs> Holy cow. Sorry, this podcast is already two hours long. An hour and a half. Okay. It's okay. My spouse has only texted me once asking where I am. <laughs> oh, yeah. So I feel like older people were like, oh, this this person's doing something interesting and different, and that's cool. Whereas peers were like, what's up, freak? Mm. <laughs> so that's kind of where the bullying came in. Yeah. This one's different. Squash the differences. <laughs> Just like Adela Pennyfather. Yep. Anyway. Uh, so rate the chapter. I will do. I'll rate the book. Uh, as always, I invite anybody else to join in. This is not just my segment. Kristen doesn't like joining in, but Nathan, if you if you'd like to do it as well, feel free. So overall, I would put this probably middle of the road as far as the books in the series go. I didn't like it as much as Horse and His Boy as a coming of age story, but also feel like it does adventure better than Voyage of the Dawn Treader did because it feels less, like, rote and repetitive and, like, there's actually new challenges and, like, metaphor here rather than, hey, we go to this island and this is the sin on this island and we're going to move on to the next island. And so I feel like this is a better adventure story coming off the heels of Voyage of the Dawn Treader. I really wanted Eustace to have more character moments in this because I feel like we had his big redemption arc in Voyage that doesn't go anywhere like, hey, he becomes a better person, but we don't get to see that at all in this book. So what's the point of that happening? Well, Jill wouldn't be in... I wanted Jill to have more role here. Because, like, coming into this, Kristen had been saying for all of the books, oh, Jill pulls amazing. Like, she's, like, my favorite character. She's so great. And, like, I expected, I I expected so much from her out of this book that I didn't get. I'm sorry. And so I was really disappointed in her as a character uh, as a whole. But that's okay because we got Puddleglum, who is probably my favorite character in the series at this point. Um, so, yeah, character-wise... Uh, 
Puddleglum's great. Uh, I think Aslan is interesting in this book as well because we see more aspects of his personality and the way he does things. And I, I think that's always neat when we get to explore Aslan a bit, a little bit more uh, when he sends kids on fool's errands that they can't possibly accomplish. Um, but yeah, overall, I, I think it was, it was pretty okay. I didn't hate this one. There were parts of it that definitely felt more grown up than other books. And like it explored some some deeper themes here that I think are, you know, kind of second only to Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Hmm. It's like I think that one does the allegory the best, and this one might be number two after that. Uh, so that all being said, um, out of Aslan's Tears, I'm gonna give it a I'm gonna give it a solid four. Okay. Four tears, four tears out of five. Like, he's pretty sad about it, but, like, not completely broken up. Wow. I know. Wow. Like, I, I don't know. I wavered between 3.75 and 4, but, like, 0.75 of a tear is just, like, he's just like, oh, nope, nope. And we're done. We're done. It's He gets the tissue and wipes it away. So, <laughs> somewhere in that, in that zone. Uh, for me, <laughs> I think that the book... Okay, going into it, as I've stated, I could not remember a thing about this book. And that's the first time that's happened for in the series. And listening to each of the episodes as you presented them, I did not remember a single thing <laughs> that you talked about. Uh, except for the, uh, the growing gyms. Uh, yes. So that, that one was like, oh, that's where I got that idea from. But I didn't even relate it to this book. Mm. And so it seems like it's not a very memorable book. <laughs> because yeah. even in prepping for this episode, I was trying to remember and I had to, as I mentioned, rely on some outside resources to clue me into what had even happened, even though I faithfully, faithfully listened to each every episode. Thank you for your patronage. <laughs> And um, and so, like, it seems like it's not a very memorable book. That said, I thought this wrap-up episode showed that there was a lot of, like, good stuff in there, in here. And this is probably his best writing of the series in terms of really using capital L literature <laughs> skills in this. <laughs> and being able to, like, tie themes together and using multiple types of themes. And, like, you know, we talked about these, like, touch points that progress the story along i think that's a really rich book that is completely forgettable <laughs> and so yeah. i'm going to give this three chronicles of narnia books out of seven. Ooh, ooh three out of seven that's okay. yeah mm. it's forgettable Ouch. it's forgettable i forget at least three of the books out of every seven i read <laughs> <laughs> that's why your book club is failing yes it is <laughs> <laughs> and I give it all of Puddleglum's magic. Wow. Which could be a lot or nothing at all. <laughs> could very much be. Which is exactly what this book is. A yeah. lot or nothing at all. Exactly. Cool. Right. So we did it. We wrapped it up. We, we have go. one more book. In this <laughs> Sorry. Aslan Forsaken series to do. Are you right. ready to wrap it up? We're laying a beat. 
Thank you so much for joining us today as we discussed the silver chair. Thank you very much to Nathan for coming in and helping us out. The pleasure is all mine. And thank you for being our friend and hanging out with us because that's, <laughs> that's a cool time too. Uh, before, we, before we shut it down, is there anything you'd like to plug, Nathan, or get out there? Any causes you want to uh, <laughs> get the listeners involved in? Um, oh man, causes. <laughs> I hear you just finished writing all the music for your next album. <laughs> I did. Uh, I'll use this opportunity to announce the name of the album. Oh, wow. The name of the album is Feminine. And each of the ten songs is my talking about certain women and how I relate to their stories. Is feminine spelled with a PH at the beginning? <laughs> no. Okay. It's spelled normally. Okay. Because I'm a normal man. <laughs> Not enchanted at all. And where and when can people look for that? I have zero idea. All right. Perhaps later today I will begin recording something. There we go. Cool. Anything else? Keep your keep your ears open, guys. Thank you so much for joining us today, listeners. And if you want to participate with us on the social medias, you can do that at Chronically Podcast on Facebook and Instagram, at Chronically Pod on Twitter. Or you can email us your fan art of a snake tied to a chair at <laughs> chronicallypodcast at gmail.com. You can also um, support us financially if you feel like it at uh, patreon.com slash chronicallypodcast. And uh, until next time, you know. I'll sell you the only copy of the silver chair signed by myself in oh, existence. Whoa, 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 whoa. It's a move. You're, gonna, you're, gonna, <laughs> you're crossing the line there, sir. You're crossing the line. My dad has already sent me autographed pictures of his copies of the books. <laughs> anyway, so until next time, if you ever meet someone wearing green, they're probably evil or... You know, whatever. Or just a woman. Yeah, or just a woman. And Which, you know, is the same thing, right? Am I right, guys? Am I right, <laughs> women? <laughs> tell me, Mom. Uh, and also, don't blub. Don't blub. you have advice to close this out? <laughs> Dang it, I forgot to prepare advice. One second. <laughs> Let me go through my notes and see if I have any advice. <laughs> And if you want to make yourself believe that planet Earth turns slowly, remember that it's really just a red blood cell. Wow. Bye. Cool. Why did they rebuild the bridge of Baruna? <laughs> Just like and her Shangri massacre. I don't know. We what? brought up a really, really impossible to say name. Airplane. They've started. Wow. That's a loud one. <laughs> That's not a plane. This is a plane. I thought you were allergic to cats. Yeah, tell me more about how candy corns are mallow creams. 
is whenever somebody says, Sorry? I got it. It kicked my foot and I thought it was like a pin or something. No, development art. Can we just name people that aren't in this book? <laughs> I'll Thomas, start. wait, no! Fred Rogers. <laughs> water. What? Tell me about water. Hey, Kristen, you look like you have something to say about water. Do ya? I'm gonna skip water for now. No! I was so thirsty, though. <laughs> you were thirsty for the topic of water. <laughs> yeah. Tell me that's not hilarious. And that when he's like slithering through the city, those Google his eyes are like googly eyes. It's so awesome. Yeah.